0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, and I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. It was a blessing for us to spend time with those who came to the potluck last Sunday. Uh, There's actually so much food left over that the staff on campus ate Thanksgiving almost every day this past week. And so thank you, Mike Fujimoto in the back there, for making all the main dishes for us, and thank you for all of you who are able to join and share your sides with us. Thank you also to the team who decorated the church. Uh, They came on uh, yesterday morning to set everything up, and so we're just so thankful for our church family. At this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke, and we are on Luke chapter 20 and verse 19 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 20 verses 19 through 26 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 879, if you are using a church Bible, page 879. Luke chapter 19 in verse, or chapter 20, excuse me, in verse 19. And Before we look at our text together, would you please join me in prayer? Father, you can make your word honey to our lips. You can make our hearts alive even if they were dead. And you can make Jesus Christ beautiful to us. And we ask that you do these things uh, by your grace and mercy. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think that one of the uh, prevalent unspoken rules for maintaining the peace during Thanksgiving, and especially more so if you're having a larger gathering and and diverse at that, uh, one of the uh, unspoken rules for maintaining the peace is to avoid topics such as religion and politics at the dinner table. Someone wants to sabotage your Thanksgiving and make it memorable in the wrong kind of way. All they would have to do is throw topics out and bait people with discussions surrounding both religion and politics and step back and watch the sparks fly. And maybe painfully, this is describing some of your own experience this past week and you were hoping for some relief at church on this Sunday morning. Uh, but this text this morning is precisely about religion and its intersection with politics. Uh, sorry about that but it is in this context that the strategy is intentional for it is meant to be a sabotage remember we're in the last week of Jesus life before he will hang upon the cross for the sins of his people and Jesus has most recently spoken a, a pretty pointed parable directed at the religious leadership that they are the hardened ones that they are wicked and they are murderous and that they will be rejected by God their privilege is stripped when all is said and done and they will commit the most heinous act of all time Jesus he doesn't hold back but he looks him squarely at the eyes. And rather than repent, Jesus' opponents, they double down on their attempts to destroy him. And here it is that they want to sabotage him, and their plan is centered around the discussion of the intersection between religion and politics. And in this passage, we see how Jesus responds to their trap, and we are given some pretty timeless truths about these very issues. But Jesus also gives to us perspective on what is perhaps the greatest issue of humanity then, And now, we read in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Before we get to the question concerning this intersection between religion and politics and the greater perspective that Jesus gives, I want you to notice the utter hypocrisy of the religious leadership and the hollowness of the profession of their own faith. They are more concerned with optics than they are concerned with the actual state of their hearts. They fear what people think more than they fear what God himself thinks. At the end of the day, they are pretenders in spirituality rather than having within themselves any kind of true life. Their response here to Jesus' pinpointed sermon directed at their own hearts and so pinpointed that they know that Jesus had spoken this parable against them, so point blank that Jesus actually looks them right into the eyes in verse 17 and quotes scripture to them. I mean, this is the greatest preacher who ever lived. This is the Son of God himself looking them into their eyes with a parable designed specifically for them and delivered with clarity, uh, accuracy, and potency. And it is evident in our text that they understood it clearly. That this sermon, this parable, is about us. We get it. We understand it. And yet what is their response? We want to lay our hands on Jesus. What do they want to do? Back in 19, verse 47, they want to destroy Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, the, the more we hear the word of Christ, the more we understand it when it speaks directly into our lives. The more we hear it and not respond to it, uh, the harder we will get. If we listen and listen and remain unchanged, our hearts will become something uh, we don't want them to become. The scribes and the chief priests, they aren't the most obvious kinds of criminals. I mean, they're actually the head honchos of religion in the first century. They knew their Bibles best. They devoted themselves to spirituality. They were the cream of the crop, the the head of the class so much so that when they spoke, the people assumed that the words coming out of their mouths were almost as good as coming from the mouth of God himself. They had privilege after privilege, honor after honor, and were so intimately acquainted with the things of God, and yet with the Son of God before them, they couldn't be any more hardened. Hardened all of that privilege, and it is all spurned because we can study the word of God until we're blue in the face. But unless we actually apply it into our lives and into our hearts, instead of getting closer to them and softer, we get harder against them to the point where we can live such hollow religious lives and house hearts that are actually positioned against them. Where Jesus is effectively destroyed in terms of having any real effect on how we actually live on how or if we love and forgive, on what we invest in and who we decide to date and how we raise our children or what we dream of, our ambitions and where our aspirations lay. Or how we plan for retirement and estate post death, our lives will show to us if we really believe his word or if we do not. The more we hear and the less we respond, the harder we can get to the point where the Son of God could look you into the eye and custom cater a message just for you. And our response is to rid ourselves of the very thing he is trying to pour into us. We have to build the right habit that we listen and then we apply so as to hear the word of Christ rightly by becoming doers of it. And is there anything that God has laid upon your heart this morning that you refuse to put into action? If we do get into the habit where this is more of an intellectual exercise, where we can understand and feel that these words are for me and take all of that and not apply it, we're going to set a pattern of unresponsiveness which will again take us to a place spiritually where we do not want to be. I mean, look at these chief priests and scribes, and, and we have to be warned here. I mean, they're afraid of people's opinions of them more than God's opinion of them. They care more about popularity than they do care about actual conviction. They're worried more about optics than they are about the truth. And we see this in their strategy. They're, they're too shamed in public by the last parable, so they go get a third-party spy. And, and what is a spy? A spy is a liar by definition. A pretender who has a motive that can only be accomplished under a guise. The strategy is deceptive, duplicitous, and insincere. And the religious leadership thinks that this is the most appropriate way to act in response to what we are seeing here. And what is their end goal? It's murder. They want to kill Jesus. They try to by shaming him in front of the people, charging him with blasphemy, inciting the crowds to throw stones at him. But the crowds like Jesus too much, at least at this point. And so what they're deciding to do instead, since our plans aren't working, is to involve Rome, the authority and jurisdiction of the governor, verse 20, because only Rome at this point has the power for capital punishment. Our religious authority didn't get us anywhere, so let's use a secular government to do the deed for us. Let's get Jesus into trouble with Rome, and then Rome will crucify him for us. If we can't get him with religion, we can get him with politics. And so we have this cowardice and murderous intention within the same religious heart. I mean, can you believe it? Lincoln Duncan, he writes this. Our strategy reveals our hearts. It's not what we say we believe. It's whether we live what we say we believe. Do we live out what we say we believe to be the word of God? The language of Christianity is very easy for someone to claim, but it is the fruit of the life that shows the state of the heart the fruit of their life shows the state of their hearts. And the question for us this morning is, what is the fruit of our lives? Because a fruit, it never lies as to what kind of tree it is. The fruit that we're seeing here is to fear the people, use spies, lie, and to get someone else to do our dirty work. And the craziest thing I think is that they seriously do not believe that they are in any kind of spiritual danger at all. They're not aware of the kind of evil that exists within them. And it's the same today with the people in the most spiritual danger that they cannot even feel it, which makes the hardness all the more impenetrable. And so we have here pretenders in spirituality more concerned with optics than the actual state of their hearts, fearing what people think more than they fear what God himself thinks and have repeatedly hollowed out the profession of their faith and increased the hypocrisy of their religion by hearing the word of God and implementing nothing about it into their lives. We continue in verse 21 to see their strategy as they ask a question concerning religion and politics. So they ask them, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? That's the question. And here we have the trap. We have a false compliment followed by a loaded question which is meant to end in death. It's a fake question from fake people to get Jesus into trouble. Look at their intro. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. This is called buttering someone up. And isn't it something that they know and understand, maybe better than a lot of people today, that the highlight of Jesus's ministry is the truthfulness of his word. And so they compliment him outwardly. This is a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is a devil disguised as an angel of light. This is smooth speech that hides daggers. You know, brothers and sisters, I think, especially in this day and age, we have to be careful uh, of, of the people who pose questions uh, with the intention to trap, to ask something loaded with a hope to record some sound bite that you give so that they can take that out of context so they can use it to rub your face in the mud publicly and to, therefore, discredit the gospel we love. We've got to be mindful of people who say smooth things, knowing that smooth words may come from different motives, even from people who claim Jesus. It may be that in their hearts, they actually deny them. Now this may be a little unpopular and be interpreted as being ungracious, but I think it would be unwise uh, for people within the church to be hastily trusting and to take it for granted that if someone can speak a good game, then they're necessarily legit. We're called to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, Matthew ten sixteen. I listen to J.C. Ryle. We shall discover by experience that all is not gold that glitters and all are not true Christians who make a loud profession of Christianity. The language of Christianity is precisely that part of religion which a false Christian finds it most easy to attain. The walk of a man's life and not the talk of his lips is the only safe test of his character. You know, one of the reasons why uh, we take time to put people into substantial leadership here at the church uh, is because we don't want to be hasty. We want to let character be proven uh, over time and through a variety of circumstances so that the walk of that believer's life may reveal who that person truly is. And and we must not be naively taken because someone can talk a big spiritual game. Uh, But back to the question at hand here, it's designed to have one of only two answers. Yes or no, Jesus. Is it law for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And this is an explosive political question. Remember that Israel is Roman-occupied, and while Israel was in their land, they paid taxes to a foreign government that technically owned their land. We're currently seeing how important this same land is today, thousands of years later, to a variety of people groups. And we know how loaded the question can be and how polarizing if we were to ask, who does this land belong to? Who has a right to it? I mean, try asking that in a big crowd at Alamoana this afternoon. And that question was perhaps more loaded in the first century than it is in our century. That whatever answer you give, you're going to set a percentage of the crowd against you, if not all of it. And here it is. If Jesus answers yes, it is lawful to give tribute to Caesar, which is a form of taxation. Then the crowd would take that as saying Jesus is saying Roman occupation is valid. We should pay them for living in our own land. And Jesus would immediately lose the people as patriotic as they were. He can't be our Messiah. Our Messiah is supposed to deliver the land to us and throw off pagan rules from our shoulder. Not validate the rule, not to submit to that rule. And so Jesus, if he simply says, yes, it's lawful to give tribute to Caesar, there would be this firestorm. But if Jesus answers, no, it's not lawful to give tribute to Caesar then all Jesus' enemies have to do with witnesses is report his answer to Rome. Rome, who doesn't take rebellion lightly. If Jesus answers no, it's not lawful, then all Jesus' enemies have to do is tell the governor and they will deal with Jesus as they see fit. And so the question is designed to be this lose-lose scenario, which is why it's posed precisely like this. And they butter Jesus up to dull his senses and to take him off guard because someone who says nice things about me and is on the same page with me, they can't really be against me. False compliment, loaded question, which is meant to end in death. Now, side note, and I think it's worth it to point this out. You know, flattery, it really only works on people who have uh, pride within their hearts. Flattery, it doesn't work on Jesus. You know, when someone compliments one of us and speaks a great deal about who we are, then we, in response, uh, are going to be more prone to want to perform in line with a compliment. Why? Because now we have a reputation to a bold. Why? Because we actually care about said reputation. Because we have this self-glory in which we are infatuated with. Let me give you a minor example. Let's say someone tells me, your prime rib is delicious. Well, then I feel all this pressure now to perform. And I feel like if the next one doesn't come out good, my name's devastated, my reputation is ruined. But why do I care? Only because there's something within me that really cares. And the measure of the effort I take to make the next prime rib the best one I've ever made is a measure of pride that can exist within my heart. I'm not talking about prime rib at the end of the day. When Jesus is showered with compliments, there's no pressure for him to perform to their expectation. This is why buttering up Jesus never works. This is why buttering up godly people never works. Jesus is so concerned with what is true And what is real conviction and not so much with the opinion of the masses. That he can answer the question with such clarity because there's something that means more to him than the community's empty praise. I mean, this is why the devil's advances never worked on Jesus in the wilderness. All of the devil's temptations can only find a hook on sinful pride within the heart. And brothers and sisters, the devil will often try to hook us up, hook us on the pride within ours. Whether we like the feeling of our ego being stroked, so we choose this path instead of that one. Or we love to be the center of our own universe, so we choose these friends over here instead of those. Satan's strategy will often be to butter you up. Eat this fruit so you could be like God. Isn't that better? You deserve to be like that. Don't you know better than God? I mean, you're smart. Or in Jesus' own wilderness experience, aren't you too good, Jesus, to be treated in this way? If God really loves you, he wouldn't let you go through something like this. Take some action. Don't you want a kingdom of your own? You deserve it. Doesn't self-glory feel so much better than God's glory, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, shouldn't we all be happy? This kind of stuff only works if there's something to hook it on. It can only grab where there is a hold, and in Jesus, there is no hold. And we should do our best, brothers and sisters, so that these kinds of things will not have a hold on us. And so, back to the main story. False compliment, followed by a loaded question, which is meant to end in death. This is the trap. But Jesus here can even use the trap to teach his people something of value. We continue in verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. and stop there. You know, there's a, a Christian duty to be a good citizen rather than to be an anarchist. And, and there's a godliness in submission to even secular and temporal authority that is evidence of our confidence in God's higher authority and sovereign rule overall, even when that secular and temporal authority acts in ungodly ways. The people posing the question, they're not after truth. They just wanted a yes or no answer. That if you submit to Caesar, pay the tribute, you're not submitting to God. But if you submit to God, then you're going to want to throw off Caesar's rule and refuse to obey it. I mean, these were the only alternatives uh, that they gave Jesus in the way they posed the question. But Jesus can see right through it. And these are not the only two options. So Jesus asked for denarius and they get one rather easily because they have one. It's right next to them. And it has Caesar's image and inscription on it because who minted these coins? Caesar. This is a currency of the Roman Empire. And simply by having it in their possession or near to them, they are admitting that we are an intimate part of the system. We derive benefit from Roman roads, a measure of safety and order from Roman governance. The very fact that we have Roman money, which is currency that only works in Rome, shows that we are also using Rome. You know, when we were in Japan, I couldn't use American currency there. I had to use yen. By using yen and by using the streets of Japan and the transportation system and and fees related to commerce, I am in submission to that government of which I am enjoying the benefit of it and abide by the laws of the nation while I am there. And then when back in the U.S., I pay my taxes even if a lot of them are being used on a rail that isn't in my neighborhood. (laughs) But, But the money and this currency is part of a system of government that I am currently a part of in the first century, it's Rome. And and guess what? Rome is no longer a powerhouse anymore. There's no longer any Roman empire. Submitting to Rome is not worshiping Rome as this timeless thing. But for temporary governance during a certain time period, it is a Christian duty to live in submission to it. And this concept is found and expanded upon in other places within the New Testament as well. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. First Timothy 2, 1 through 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings. And all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Who do we pray for the kings? God, the main king. First Peter 2:17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. And I wonder if we pray for our nation's leaders as much as we complain about them. I wonder if we serve our nation. Go to things like jury duty. Again, like too personal here. But one of the greatest expressions of our trust in God's sovereignty is to submit to the governing authorities, even when they are doing things that are not to our liking. In doing so, we are proclaiming that my submission to you is really my submission to the God who is over you, and therefore we can submit and pay our taxes, even when those taxes are not being used in ways we would like them to be used. Now, this is key to understand, because Rome is going to be responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Rome is going to be responsible for the imprisonment of Christians, and Rome would be liable for the martyrdom of many of our brothers and sisters in the early period of the church. And yet nowhere does the New Testament suggest we should form a political rebellion. No, instead our trust is in God, and we recognize that there is no true power to even be found in Rome unless God so granted it, much like God so granted the devil temporary power over the life of Job in the Old Testament which even that temporary power would be used to sanctify Job and glorify God. That his biography would be the means by which many suffering Christians throughout the ages would be built up in the knowledge of God and the perspective of eternity. This is why we can submit to things when we can't make sense of them in the meantime. But we can submit cheerfully and willingly because we believe that God is sovereign over all. Now, we have a wonderful, beautiful country, and by the grace of God, we get to live and enjoy the United States of America, where we can worship freely. But our ultimate hope at the end of the day is not in America, brothers and sisters. Our ultimate hope is in the God who granted America to us. If we were to move to another country or our country goes this way or that way, our hope does not have to be shaken and our humble submission can still occur for we hope in God who is above all things. Now we can dissect and caveat all day for hours upon hours and I understand that there are much more complicated scenarios that require a lot of wisdom and there are legal ways to communicate displeasure with the government without dishonoring it. And there are votes and legislation that believers can and should be involved with. Of course, with things like human dignity, justice for all, sanctity of life, what is right and moral, we should advocate for with a passion. But we must do so with all respect and within the means of the law, for this is what God is asking for. And there may come a point, like it did in the book of Acts in chapter 5, where sharing and teaching the gospel became illegal. And what do Peter and the apostles respond there? They respond, we must obey God rather than men. But they were also willing to accept the consequences for that. And we are not there right now. And so there is a Christian duty to be a good citizen rather than to be an anarchist. There is a godliness and submission to even secular and temporal authority that is evidence of our confidence in God's higher authority and sovereign rule overall. But this entire discussion is not even the main gist of Jesus' argument here. Jesus' argument rests upon the image on a coin related to who owns that coin Jesus, although we can derive truths about this statement about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus is not primarily concerned with something as small and insignificant as Roman politics and taxation. I mean, he isn't even concerned with money at all. The fact that he has to ask for denarius is because Jesus doesn't even have one in his pocket. The fact that he has to go get a drachma from a fish's mouth to pay the tax in Matthew 17 is because he doesn't even have that in his pocket. The birds have nests, the foxes have holes, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What this shows to us is that these issues are almost irrelevant when all is said and done in light of eternity. Jesus brings up the image of a coin to prove who the coin belongs to so that he can segue into the main issue of humanity and whose image we bear. This is the bigger perspective and the greater issue for mankind then and now. Verse 20, we continue. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. You know, Caesar, you can own all the coins that are made in his image and God, the ones who are made in his. This is the parallel that Jesus is getting to. This is the basis for determining what is God's and what is the government's. Is the image upon it? And therefore, taxes, they can belong to Rome all day, but souls belong to the Lord. You know, our issue is not primarily a political one. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says there, God said, let us make man, humanity, in our image after our likeness. And in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them prior to our turning away from god humanity enjoyed god fully trusted him wholly lived perfectly and it was beautiful and it was good and our hearts and our souls were satisfied and there was no sin and there was no shame there was perfect union with each other and perfect union with god but when humanity turned away from god things changed And with this sin now blocking that fellowship, we were given over to differing passions and lusts and ambitions and carnal desires. Romans chapter one, where we sought after created things rather than the creator in whose image we were designed after, and things were not good. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, we know this from experience. You know, we're often thinking, if I get this one thing, it's gonna make me happier than anything and we pursue it with all of our might, and then we might get it, and then it's not all that like we thought it was, and then the returns start to diminish until we set our hearts and affections on the next thing. Now, this thing is going to make me happier than anything else, and then we seek after that, and then we get it again, and then the returns diminish again, whether it's a relationship, a financial goal, a certain car, a kind of body, a popularity, reputation, power in this arena, or that one, blah, 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 blah but we become like what we worship. That's the argument of Psalm 115. We become lifeless, that rather than beholding God in whose image we are made, we behold things so much less than, and therefore we follow suit. You see, sin is not just uh, the obviously evil and wicked things. Sin is even putting neutral things or even good things in the place of God. When we seek those When we seek in those, what we can only find ultimately in Him. The wages of this preference, the wages of this sin is death, Romans 6.23. Each of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And this is life with humanity disconnected from God. But here's a gospel message. That Jesus Christ has come, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, uh, this is the advent we celebrate, his coming during this time of the year. The Son of God has arrived to us, true humanity and deity in the same person. Yet he lives a life we never lived. Why? So that he might die the death we deserve, crucified. He experiences the judgment due to us. He defeats death in his resurrection. He ascends into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father, even now awaiting to return to his bride. He exemplifies true humanity in fellowship and in union with God. And when we look at him, we see that he is altogether beautiful. But he comes not only to exemplify this, but he comes to give his life For those who marred the image of God within themselves. Why? Because he loves us. He loved us even when we were rebelling against him. He forgives the ones who turned away the artist. With the cost of his own life. But Jesus doesn't just do this to forgive and forget. And let us keep seeking after vain things. No, Jesus does this to make us new and to bring us back to God in whose image we are created and in whom we are designed to find true and lasting satisfaction. I mean, give your taxes, give your coins to Caesar, but give your heart and give your soul to God. At the end of the day, Caesar is really trivialized in this text when all is said and done. For the perspective that Jesus gives here is that our efforts must be given to the greater. And what is it? that we must render to God everything, absolutely everything. When we give everything to him, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength to Jesus Christ, that is where we find life. And everyone who tried to trap him here is marveled. And they remained silent, for they could not refute a single thing that he said. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. That when you looked at rebels who marred your image in us, you gave us Jesus Christ, your son. Perfect humanity, true deity to suffer and die in our place because you love us. And I pray, God, that your love would be materialized in our real lives that we might turn by the power of your Holy Spirit away from the creature and unto you, the creator. Father, renew your image in us that we might enjoy you more than we ever have before and that we might enjoy you forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.